Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Today, today we're going to go backstage. I want to encourage you in these moments that we have together to shut off your Christmas to-do list that's scrolling in your brain somewhere and turn your attention back to where it's supposed to be this time of year on Jesus. I want to get you to focus on him. We're going to look at his birth again today, but I want to do more than that. I want to do more than just retell the story as great a story as it is. I want to ask you to go a little deeper with me, go inside. And when it comes to Jesus, the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the mystery surrounding Jesus, Jesus the Savior, I want you to ask yourself, what does Jesus mean to you? What do you feel when you hear the word Jesus? When the name comes to you and you think about Jesus, what do you feel? Not what does Jesus make your family feel or what does Jesus make your friend or your spouse feel. What do you feel? What do you think of Jesus? I want you to pull back a layer or two. What do you feel? Now, you don't have to be super spiritual to do this. If you've been to church a million times, great. If you're listening for the very first time, you can do this as well. Jesus, you see, always evokes feelings. His name alone evokes feelings in us. If it feels a little confusing to you at this moment, I want to unpack that a bit, and I want, I want to help you. I want to go backstage with you. I want to look behind the scenes of his birth and look at what is actually there in the written word in the Bible. As a matter of fact, Jesus' birth is only found in two places in the Bible, in the gospel or the good news of Matthew, and in the gospel or the good news of Luke. Over 2,000 years, We've learned, however, to make those few verses into really good theater. We've taken the birth of Jesus and done everything to it, and not all of them, of course, bad. We've put it to music, we've put it to dance, we've put it to theaters, and on the surface, these are all okay, but here's my concern in this. I think we've worked really hard at making the birth of Jesus safe, sanitized, comfortable, warm, cute, fuzzy even, just to make us feel good. But we've added a whole lot of pageantry. It's glitter is what it is. Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, you've just got to know this, it was a whole lot more grittier than glittier. Less Hollywood, way more humanity. More grit, less glit. I want to take you behind the scenes to some of the key characters in the event and see how gritty it was for them. Back at the beginning of November, Jennifer, my wife, and I went to Kelowna to see our son Zach and his family who've moved there and had occasion to spend a night each way at a hotel. And there is in the hotel room a great little thing that seems to always evoke a kind of warm response in us when we first see it. Those of you with young kids, I know you wish you had one of these at home and that it actually meant something. I'm referring, of course, to the do not disturb sign. Honestly, doesn't it just think of, I heard chuckles here already, it it just makes you smile. Doesn't it just conjure up thoughts about sleeping in, no agenda, peace, do not disturb me. Leave me alone. This day is mine. Imagine being able to hang that sign on your door. Frankly, being able to hang that sign on your life, and it automatically frees you from all interruption. That's appealing 
because life is generally not like that, is it? It's full of interjections, interruptions, change, adventure, the unexpected. We know that over the last couple of years. It, unplanned stuff just enters our world. You didn't expect it, you didn't plan for it. In fact, you may not have even wanted it. Maybe, although then, it's also positive. A friend who helps you out when you're in need, or negative when your well-laid-out plans fall through. Or you're just going out the door and the phone rings. In the Christmas story, part of the larger grand story that Pastor Ray has been taking us through, uh, totally unexpected things happen. So we're going to look at how some of the people at the heart of the story responded to their agendas completely being thrown out the window when God enters their world. Because Christmas actually is all about God entering our world, isn't it? And no one knows that more than Mary. And it begins with an extraordinary encounter between her and the angel Gabriel. We don't know exactly where in Nazareth Mary was or what she was doing there, but into her relatively uncomplicated life comes someone with wings. We know at least four things about Mary. She's young, she's poor, she's a devout believer in God, and she's very much in love. When the story opens, Mary is pledged or engaged with commitment, kind of a binding commitment, engaged to Joseph. Between the pledge, you see, and the wedding feast was a period usually lasting six months up to a year. During that period, the couple was considered to be married and were called husband and wife, but they did not live together or have marital relations. Like brides-to-be everywhere, I'm sure Mary can hardly think of anything but her upcoming wedding. The guest list, the decorations, the food, the music, the dress. I'm guessing that Mary had probably never been happier, and if she could have, she would have wanted to hang a do not disturb sign on her plans, on her life right then. She's about to get comfortable. But it's right at this point that God enters the scene. He's about to ask an unknown teenage girl to take part in something that is so shocking that if it hadn't been predicted in Scripture, it would seem to be unbelievable and impossible. What God asked Mary to do will change her life and, of course, the course of history forever. And I'm going to ask you, because we're going to read a bit of a lengthy spot here, if you wouldn't stand if you're able, and to read this along with me. Here we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. 
And then, she, then Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. You can have a seat now, and uh, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Talk about an interruption, eh? As a general rule, any time a girl gets engaged and is planning her wedding, it's not a good time to bring up interruptions. Some of you have been there. Some of you perhaps are there right now. Do you have any idea, for instance, how many bride magazines there are? There are there's bride. There's elegant bride. There's modern bride, not to be confused with contemporary bride or today's bride. Do you know there's even a magazine called Disillusioned Bride? Disillusioned Bride. I, it makes you want to see what's going on in there, right? You're not even married yet, and you're the disillusioned bride. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever seen a magazine called Modern Groom? No, because nobody cares about what the groom is doing or what the groom is wearing. A groom at a wedding is like a restroom in an art gallery. You have to have them, but nobody goes to look at one. In our day, when a girl gets engaged, you can always tell because she walks a little bit funny. She walks around like this, right? She walks around like this because she wants you to see the ring. But think about this. In this moment, things have changed drastically for Mary. For Mary, there's going to be no ring. For Mary, there, there's going to be no magazines. Gone are the happy dreams of a beautiful wedding. Gone are the days of sweet anticipation. Gone are the carefully thought out plans for the wedding feast with all the friends and family. God has shown up and everything has changed. She will be married, but not before rumors spread through the countryside. There will be a wedding feast, but not the way that she planned. It will all happen, but not in the grand way that she expected. New Testament callers say that, scholars say that Mary was one of what were called the Anawim. It means the poor ones. The Anawim were the financially deprived or depressed, the lonely, the sick, the disabled, those who could not trust on their own strength and had to depend on God. They were around from the time of the Exodus on. Scholars say that they've been there all this time, just needy, just needing others to help them, needing to depend on God. We know that Mary and Joseph had little because when Jesus was born, she, they couldn't even afford a lamb for his baby dedication and gave two pigeons instead. We know because in her prayer, which you can read about in Matthew chapter 1, she describes herself as being in a humble state. That's code word for Anawim. She knows about being in a humble state and depending on God because there is no other hope for her now, really. But finally, something good happens to Mary. Something really, really good. She gets engaged. If nobody married her, she did not have a lot of options. We don't read a word about her parents. We don't know if they're still around or if they're gone already. But once they were gone, she was on her own. No longer did she have any means of support at all. She's in a very serious predicament if she doesn't get married. Joseph is not rich, but he's respectable. He has an occupation. For maybe the first time in Mary's life, at least financially, her circumstances are looking up. She's engaged. She's going to get married. Comfort awaits. And then her life is interrupted. 
An angel appears to her, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And did you notice Mary's first response? It says that Mary is greatly troubled. Why is that? Well, this is precisely the kind of greeting that the angel of God would bring to someone in the Old Testament who is going to be given a difficult assignment. I joke about it when I'm going to ask someone on staff here for a favor. I say, hey, oh buddy, oh pal. And they go, "Uh uh-oh. It's the same thing here. You who are highly favored, uh uh-oh. What's happening? For instance, an angel comes to Gideon, who is hiding from the Midianites, and the angel says, the Lord be with you, mighty warrior. Uh Uh-oh. Gideon finds out he's going to go up against the Midianites. Mary knew her Old Testament, and she understood immediately there's going to be a deep challenge associated with the greeting, the Lord is with you. Sometimes we throw that out pretty blandly, don't we? The Lord is with you. The angel says, Mary, you're going to have a safe, secure, you are going to have a safe, quiet life, but no longer. You're going to go on quite an adventure, but it's not going to be the one that young girls from the Anawim generally dream about. God has something far more demanding to ask of you and Joseph. The brief portrait of Joseph in Scripture suggests he was a quiet, unobtrusive man, available when needed, willing to endure hardship and disappointment, looking forward, no doubt, to his marriage and to having a family. Joseph probably thought his life was pretty well planned out. His marriage and his vocation were already arranged in front of him, but that was all about to change because once again, God shows up. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I want to start with the first description we're given about Joseph, and it might depend a little bit on the version, that, uh, the, Bible, the Bible version, the translation version you look at, but in this version it says he was a righteous man. That's kind of the oldest kind of description that's given to him. Uh, there's a real rich history behind this idea. The Hebrew word for a righteous man is the word sadiq, sadiq. By all accounts, Joseph was an ordinary guy, and about the only thing that ordinary people had in those days was their reputation. Joseph has a reputation. Joseph was a Sadiq. And this meant that he was known for his uncompromising obedience to the Torah, to the law of Moses. They associated that back in that day as being, that meant you were righteous. If you had uncompromising obedience to the Torah, to the law of Moses. He did not eat unclean foods. He didn't mix with the wrong kinds of people. He didn't keep his carpentry shop open on the Sabbath to make a few extra bucks. He was a Sadiq. That was his identity, and everybody knew this about Joseph. Nobody invited Joseph over for wild parties or to have ham sandwiches. It just didn't happen. He was what people wanted to be, like a businessman in our day wants to be a CEO, like an athlete wants to be an all-star, like somebody born in Regina wants to live anywhere else. (laughs) An Israelite wanted to be a Sadiq, because then you were admired, and then you were looked up to. Then you were somebody, and that was Joseph. But now he's a Sadiq with a problem. The girl that he has promised to marry is going to have a baby, and whoever the the father is, Joseph knows it's not him. 
Nazareth is a small town, and as a general rule in small towns, there is a foot-and-mouth disease called gossip, right? So we have a Sadiq and a pregnant fiancé in a small village where it's the general rule that everybody knows everybody's business. Because we live on the other side of Christmas, we want to rush now to the end of the story where everything turns out kind of glittery and okay. But in the Christmas rush, you might miss how God is already beginning to redefine what it is to be a Sadiq what true righteousness is. Because of that, we're going to walk in Joseph's shoes for just a second. Put yourself in his place for a moment. Your fiancé is pregnant, but your whole reputation and identity revolve around one thing, your commitment to the Torah. What the Torah says, you do. What the Torah says you don't do, you don't do. That's who you are. The Torah has some very clear instructions about what to do to somebody in Mary's condition, and they were all harsh. The most harsh, of course, was to actually have her be stoned. Jewish and Roman law both demanded that a man divorce his wife if she were found guilty of adultery. In fact, Roman law actually made the husband guilty if he didn't divorce her. Because others would assume that Joseph himself had gotten her pregnant unless he divorced her, his reputation was at stake for the rest of his life. This wasn't just a one-time thing. Oh, oh, it was Jesus. Oh, well, that's okay. No, for the rest of his life, this was something that Joseph would have to bear. In any case, the Torah was real clear. Joseph's reputation as a sneak was on the line, and everybody knew that he would buy into the reputation angle. That's all he had, after all. All of his fellow Siddiqers would have told him that this sin must be publicly exposed and therefore punished. But Joseph couldn't bring himself to do this. As he turned these options over in his mind, one fact emerged with such power that it overshadowed all of his pain and sense of betrayal. Joseph realized that he loved Mary more than anything. Even though he could no longer kind of go ahead with things, that he lost trust in her in a way, he wouldn't have her judged publicly he would divorce her quietly, hopefully even privately, and do it in the morning. That way he could minimize her suffering, but still maintain his status and his reputation as a righteous man. With that decision made, he fell into an exhausted sleep. But in his sleep, in a dream, God opens up to Joseph an option that he'd never even for a moment considered. But after he had considered this, an angel appeared to him in a dream. The key word there, I think, is after. Here's the question. Why did God make Joseph wait until after he had to think and struggle with all this? Why couldn't an angel just come to him as an angel had come to Mary ahead of time and explain everything that was going on and remove all the anxiety from him? Keep him comfortable. Is it possible that Anxiety removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph or maybe for you and I. Is it possible that getting his world turned upside down, having to struggle between what he thought a Sadiqa, a so-called righteous man ought to do, and his longing to show compassion to this young girl, that maybe Joseph was being prepared by God to come to a whole new understanding of what righteousness really is? Is it possible in your life, maybe right now, if you're confused or disoriented or uncertain about something, that maybe it's not because you've done something wrong at all? Maybe you're about to grow. Maybe God is about to make you uncomfortable. 
Maybe what you need to do is just wait on God and keep praying and refusing to violate God's word. Trusting that God's going to do something in your life you don't even know about yet. That's what happens here. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Now, why would Joseph be afraid to wed Mary? Well, we've just talked about it. Joseph would be afraid of offending God, violating the law. But it's not just that. Joseph would be afraid of losing his reputation. He would be afraid of what everybody would think about him for the rest of his life. Joseph knew all about his own doubts when Mary told him about the angel. There's no way the people in his town are going to believe that an angel came to a poor couple that nobody would ever heard of in a one-stop town and caused the, caused the conception of a child in the body of a virgin teenage girl. There's just no way, right? He knew if he married her, his friends would never accept his account of what happened. He would not be invited to their homes. He would not be given their business. He would never again be admired and respected as a lover of the Torah. Do you see what's at stake here? This is gritty stuff. If he committed himself to this baby, to the one who would be known as Jesus, he would do so at enormous sacrifice. His whole reputation, all that he had, trashed. Now here's the cool thing that comes. The angel addresses him as son of David. He reminds Joseph that he is of royal descent of the house of David. It also reminds him that he is a godly man, that his definition of righteousness isn't God's definition. He's a man of of the Torah and of temple ordinances, sure. The only other person, the only other person in the New Testament who is called a son of David is the Lord Jesus himself. Isn't that cool? And yet this is how the angel addresses Joseph. The angel tells Joseph that the child in Mary would be born of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son who is to be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's not a big stretch to kind of imagine yourself in this situation and wonder how you would reply to a transcendent voice that interrupts your plans in a dream. Hesitation, reluctance, uncertainty, deliberation would surely rule our response, wouldn't it? As has so often been the case, we might attempt to bypass God's instruction and follow the dictates of our own hearts. There's got to be another way through this minefield. Like, have you ever thought about Joseph's thoughts? I'm going to be the dad of the savior of the world. How am I going to parent him? Will he accept discipline or will he be disciplining me? What if I say or do the wrong thing? Will there be a lightning bolt like from the sky there had to be like all kinds of mystery and a lot of fear behind the scenes on this one all this took place though to fulfill what the lord had said through the prophet the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him emmanuel which means god with us now here's the cool thing we see it in mary already now we get to see it in joseph when joseph woke up he did 
what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Back in those days when you gave the name, you, you, you just assumed, you know, like it was like, it's like a formal adoption in our day and age. It was like, this is my son. I've given him his name. It was a formal kind of declaration that he's mine. How cool is that, eh? God's interruptions often work this way. How often in the Bible does an angel of God interrupt somebody and say, the Lord is with you and now your life is going to be full of ease and comfort. It doesn't happen, friends. We often pray for that though, don't we? Think about it. Have you ever prayed for, you know, uh, uh, be with me and make things easier and more comfortable? It doesn't happen in the Bible that way. One of the ways that you can recognize a divine interruption is that it usually summons you to servanthood, not convenience, not to ease, not to wealth, and not to power. Usually it's a summons to a sacrifice and serving others. Like if it's December in Steinbeck and you suddenly think that you hear God calling you to serve him in Hawaii, you might want to listen a second time. Because usually when God interrupts somebody's life, he calls them to serve and to sacrifice. It's a challenge, and you've got to give up your plans. I'm going to pause for a moment and get personal and ask this question of all of us. When was the last time that you let God interrupt your plans? When was the last time you just let go of your plans and let God lead and guide you? When was the last time you let God interrupt your plans, your agenda? In our world, the more important somebody is, the more they choose to insulate their life against ever being interrupted. In our world, there's generally an inverse correlation between the status and interruptability, right? We have answering machines to screen our calls. Hotels give people the do not disturb signs. Office phones have buttons on them that you can send calls immediately into voicemail. So nobody can interrupt you. CEOs have a whole battery of assistants to screen their calls, to shield them from interruption. There's a problem. There's a trend in Scripture. When God is going to work in somebody's life on this earth, usually it means he has to interrupt them. Abraham, I want you to leave. Moses, I want you to leave the wilderness where you're safe and comfortable. Gideon, I want you to leave your hiding place. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is supremely true at Christmas, isn't it? Christmas is God's great interruption to all of us. Let me tell you something about God's interruptions in your life. My thoughts are not your thoughts, he says, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's plan for your life is always bigger than your plan because he's got a bigger perspective. Joseph and Mary just wanted to get married and settle down and raise little Mary and Joseph's. God said, I want to bless the whole world through you. If you say, God, here I am, totally available to you. Do with me whatever you want to do. You would not believe, actually, what God can accomplish through you. Because his plans are always bigger. God's plans for your life are also harder than your plan. 
That's why so many people cut and run at this point in time. Human nature's way is to take the easy way out, to slide through life, to take the course of least resistance. But God is more interested, I've told you many times, God is way more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. He wants you to become a mature follower. He wants you to be a person of character and integrity and to take responsibility. He is in no way going to take all the problems out of your life. It's a harder way, but it produces character. It's also more rewarding. The Bible says no one has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. When you cooperate with God's plan and God's purpose for your life, you have three benefits that just fly out at you. The first, obviously, is salvation and satisfaction and significance. The things that everybody is looking for truly deep down in their lives. Nothing can replace those. Not sex, not status, not success. Because once you discover God's plan for your life and you start fulfilling it, then you go, oh, oh, this is why I'm here. This is what I was made for. The Mary and Joseph we see that always look so happy and perfect and mild and content in the Christmas play had a lot grittier stuff going on behind the scenes. With the Son of God kicking in her stomach, Joseph has no choice but to take Mary on a road trip. And that's told for us in Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, which was, I mean, this is an enormous thing. And everyone went to their own town, their hometown, to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the, son, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, the idea behind expecting there is obviously expecting. Not, you know, uh, we hear it, but we don't see it. No, it was that obvious. She was in her last month. She was really expecting a child. From Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 115 kilometers. Scholars believe it's going to take five to six days to travel that, depending on weather, traffic, fuel prices, accuracy of their, of their DPS. Now, in those days, they didn't have GPS. They had DPS, donkey plotting speed. Five or six days on a donkey, feeling every step, every jolt, every sway, hanging on for dear life, doesn't seem like a joy ride to me. Mary was uncomfortable. They get to Bethlehem. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, one little time out here. The original versions actually don't use the word that is elsewhere used in the Bible for in. It's actually closer to the idea of a guest house, not just when we picture in, we see a motel and, you know, various little rooms and the sign out front, you know, neon flashing, all that stuff. This was the idea that people, because of the uh, census, were letting out rooms in their house. It's kind of that idea of a guest room rather than, you know, a, a nice little appointed room with, you know, two queen beds and a bathroom in an inn. There's a lot in these, these verses that spark the imagination, though, of today's theater. When you go behind the scenes, do you really see a calm Mary? Do you see an angelic and glowing Mary? She doesn't look like she just spent hours in labor. Do you see someone who looks like a model that just walked out of a day spa wherein the supernatural God baby all of a sudden just appeared? What do you see? 
I see an uncomfortable Mary, obviously pregnant, riding some smelly, hard, uncomfortable, bumpy burrow for 115 kilometers, and after all of that, doesn't even get to have a proper place to give birth. Most of the places in those days had something out back to, to hold their animals in, their prized animals, so that they wouldn't wander off or, frankly, be stolen. I've been at the birth of both of my sons. To know my wife is to know maturity and calmness and self-control. Jennifer personifies togetherness to me, the make-do you know, attitude, get it done. She's possibly one of the most together people on this planet. We got in a very comfortable car and we drove 15, not 115, 15 kilometers to a hospital where we parked right near the door and had a heated room with a window where she sipped on water and ice chips while by her side, never to leave her, was a compassionate, caring, knowledgeable, and understanding companion. And I was in the room too. I was just over in the corner trying to keep it together, actually. But my very put-together wife, when it came to give birth, she was uncomfortable. Right, ladies? And I had the sore hand that was locked in hers to prove it, right? So I take all that and I think about Mary. The water's broken. It's time for action. There's no hospital. There's no room. The Savior of the world is about to be born in a stable? Not exactly the place you would think for the King of the world to be born. Not exactly Mary's dream either. That likely didn't really follow her birth plan, the one that they'd made up in the Lamaze class, the one where there'd be a nice music playing in the background and no cows burping and no camels snorting and no sheep bad-mouthing the whole thing, right? This wasn't the start of all the dreams that she had for her life when she was thinking about being a mom. I've got to believe Mary and Joseph were both very uncomfortable, but they were following God's plan. Then let's go backstage with the usual villain of the story here, the innkeeper. In the retelling of the event of the birth of Jesus, the innkeeper is always vilified. Who would not open a room for a pregnant woman? This person is like the first Scrooge of Christmas. But I never hear anybody ever getting on Joseph for bad planning. Why didn't you check Camelosity and make a reservation, Joseph? No, it's always the wicked innkeeper. But here's the deal. The innkeeper isn't even mentioned. There's no innkeeper mentioned ever. He's not even an it in the Bible. It all comes from that one little phrase, because there was no room for them in the inn or the guest room. That's it. Behind the scenes, I'm sure there was somebody who met them at the door or who said, you know, we don't have any space. I don't see whoever this person was and for the sake of keeping this going, we'll just call it innkeeper, I'd just see him or her being occupied. It was what it was. There's no room. We're full. We're sold out. No vacancy. Scholars believe that the innkeeper may have guided them to a cave or a lean-to against the rocks out back where they kept some of those prized animals. No one really knows. But what is clear, there wasn't room for them indoors. Behind the scenes, my guess is that the innkeeper was also just as occupied. He had a full house. He had probably people asking for things all over the place. He's probably so busy, so occupied, he himself has no space for Jesus. The innkeeper, occupied. Mary and Joseph, uncomfortable, maybe even a little afraid. What do you feel when you go backstage on the Christmas story and focus on Jesus? 
way down deep behind the curtains of your life to the place that no one else can see, your soul, what does Jesus mean to you? What feelings does his very name evoke? Lose the costumes you wear to hide from other people. Drop all the stories you make up so people will perceive you to be a certain way. Lower the walls that you use to protect yourself. Look in the mirror reflection and go behind the scenes in your own life. Maybe Jesus brings fear into your life. Maybe you're afraid of what your life would look like if you were totally to align yourself with the teachings of Jesus. And that just makes you fearful. Or you're afraid of getting close to other people who are connected to Jesus. Or maybe you love Jesus, but you're afraid that your life somehow won't measure up to his expectations. And so as a follower of Christ, you like to stay hidden, fearful in the shadows. Or maybe Jesus makes you just uncomfortable. Let's admit it, you're not afraid of aligning your life to the teachings of Jesus, God's forgiveness, the community of believers. You just don't want the uncomfortable part that comes with it, obeying doing, acting, lifestyle. You've crafted it to be comfortable for you in the way that you want it to be. You don't want to have Jesus make you uncomfortable by the way that you think and live and respond and treat other people. But the truth is deep down there's a gnawing hunger in your soul. There's something missing from your life and yet your life is filled to capacity. Your schedule is overbooked. Your budget is overspent. You're running on empty, yet there's no room for anything or anyone else. This is the lesson of Christmas. Christmas is all about making room for Jesus in your life. If you miss that, you miss the whole thing. You miss the meaning of Christmas and why Jesus came. Did you catch our part in Christmas? It's we have to make room for Jesus. If we're waiting for a time when we will conveniently have lots of margin, lots of room in our lives, how is that working out for you so far? Honestly, it's not. Maybe the answer is the response of some of the others who are part of the Christmas story. There are two groups of people specifically mentioned who also encounter the baby Jesus, the shepherds and the wise men. Both faced a question upon being interrupted and receiving the news that the king of kings had been born from the angels or from the star. Both decided to make room for their lives in, for Jesus. Both leave everything to come and find him. And both have the same response. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were what? Amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On coming to the house, the wise men saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which, by the way, is the only reference to three things. We have no idea how many wise men there were. There in the presence of Jesus, even baby Jesus, and their response is worship. Their response is worship. Give to him. Give glory. Give, give honor. Give presence. They didn't just worship in the moment. They take their worship to the streets. They traveled. They brought gifts. They told everybody about what they'd experienced, that they were in the presence of the Savior that had been promised. They were with Jesus. That's the ultimate experience, the Christmas gift to us all. We can be with Jesus. 
The Bible says other people are astonished, amazed. Other translations say dumbfounded, overwhelmed. Everybody's awestruck. As I went backstage and really began to think about this, I realized there really isn't much in my life that ever truly amazes me. Interestingly enough, two of those times were when our sons were born, and the third was when I was born again. Think about your life. When was the last time you were ever amazed, awestruck? You know, the type of astonishment where your mouth is just open and you can't say anything, and after a bit, you finally have to tell somebody about it? Just maybe this Christmas season, when it comes to Jesus, you are also awestruck, you are amazed, and that defines you. Just the name of Jesus evokes these feelings within your soul where you can't keep quiet. The name of Jesus does more than just make you smile or want to put a bumper sticker on your car. The name of Jesus rocks your world. It gives you a passion for a living and a compassion for others. You're not perfect, but Jesus definitely guides your thinking and guides your life, and you want other people to know about him as well. That's the kind of awesome that the shepherds and the wise men and all those throughout the last 2,000 years have made room for and invited Jesus into their lives and experienced real fulfillment, real hope, real joy, and the real love of Jesus being with him. They fell to their knees. They took it to the streets. They couldn't contain themselves with this good, even great news. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They made room for Jesus. Will you?